From shamans to scientists, mediums to masterminds, cannabis to LSD. Spark joy, spark curiosity, and spark a joint. Because you're listening to... Right. Oh my goddess, Ariel Clark. This is a long time coming. You are such an accomplished woman. I'm so impressed by you in a million different ways and the world is too. And when I was thinking about you, writing these questions about you, I really realized that you are such a mission-driven person and you really emanate this energy of like, you're on the path, you're doing something, you're here to create change in the world. And so this is a big question to start us off with, but what is Ariel Clark's mission in both your work and the world that you're trying to create outside of that? Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for asking me that question. Um, because the, really the fuel, the fire that feeds me every day and compels me forward through all of the difficulties, both the inner difficulties and the challenges externally is really wanting to to contribute to the healing of our planet to the healing of each of us to the healing of the legal system to the healing of you know the economic system mm -hmm. really because i love us humans i love the animals i love the plants i love the four directions the seven sacred directions the you know just this it's i'm deeply in love with this experience. And I also deeply feel a lot of, um, a lot of places where we are unhealed. And as a lawyer and a policy reformer, and as an activist, for some reason, my life path is to be very directly engaged in the system, really, you know, in, 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 understanding the framework understanding what what is what is going on looking and looking around that and then seeing places where and listening deeply to like where places it's not serving us it's not serving us in the greater sense us as humans us as animals us as plants the ocean the sky the air you know mm. it's like this vision that i had in one of my first ceremonies where I really saw who I truly am and I really saw who we truly are and we are we are healthy we are eating healthy foods we are breathing clear air we are connected with the earth we are in re right relationship to each other we walk paths of humility you know like, I see that for us, you know? Mm -hmm. going to make me cry pretty early on. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's because I, I, it, it feels like the truth of the calling of our souls, you know? Mm -hmm. Like. Absolutely. Yeah. And that is, uh, I mean, everything that you just said, I think the average person would be flabbergasted to know came out of a lawyer's <laughs> mouth. That's not exactly the verbiage or perspective perhaps one would expect. And what I think is very beautiful and unique about 
your mission and your life path in the legal system is this level of sacred responsibility and really owning that and showing up for humanity in an unexpected but absolutely necessary and modern way to help us all navigate uh, things with um, like legal, the legal system with integrity and with a little bit more hope than perhaps one would uh, know is possible. So I really, I loved hearing you open with that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So um, you're a very prestigious lawyer, prestigious Mm -hmm. lawyer in the cannabis community and, and beyond. And I'm wondering what made you want to pursue law in the first place? Um, You know, I had Mm -hmm. listened to a podcast where you said that growing up, you didn't really have any examples of lawyers in your life. So what was, what sparked that aha for you and made you commit? seeing that people were not being well represented in the system, um, seeing inequities, feeling them really as a very, very young person. Um, you know, I have, I appear, I'm, I'm white appearing. I'm biracial. I'm half Odawa Anishinaabe. My tribe is in the Great Lakes area and half like mostly French uh, American descent. And, um, you know, I had a very non-traditional upbringing in a lot of respects and also was raised with a different cultural lens than dominant white culture. Again, although I am white appearing probably. Um, and, um, you know, it was, it was seeing that there was some, like, it, it, it probably started with a question, the question was, what, what is, what is hurting these people around me that I love? And what will, what will, what will allow for an end to the hurt and the injustice? Really, that's where it came from. And, you know, it's interesting. It's been interesting to, I think at some point a couple of years ago, almost like wake up and recognize that a lot of my professional life path is fueled by trauma. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, there's a thing called Native American ancestral trauma, and this is like this very serious, uh, I mean, for some reason I inherited a lot of it. I was, I had nightmares for 20 years, depression, anxiety. I drank alcoholically because that is how I could not. I felt so much pain on so many levels, physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, the, the, I, I, for some reason, (laughs) but I guess it makes sense why colonization hit me and my family very hard. Most people are dead in my family. They've killed themselves or it's alcohol and drug related, but really it's the underpinnings are trauma. Right. Right. So it's like, um, and I'm so deeply grateful that I, was able to really like my life is one of deep transformation, you know, and I'm very grateful for all of those experiences because it, it put me in that right relationship and place of humility. You know, there is something to, to walking in the dark places and falling in ways that we don't imagine that, that we don't conceive of ourselves to, you know, and I'll bring that back to your original question of like, what, what is it that, got me to be a lawyer like that is all part of 
of the path for me, which is like my inner healing journey is also my life. You know, these social problems, (laughs) these cultural problems, colonization, capitalism out of control, white supremacy, patriarchy, all of these things, they aren't just like things that exist out as some sort of like conceptual framework. No, no, they actually impact us as individuals deeply. And this is what it looks like is suffering in a lifetime. You know, so becoming a lawyer, I imagined that I would be able to help alleviate suffering. And there's something inside of me that is really just in this like place of like warrior vibration and like seeking justice. And, um, and this is Siddhartha who's yeah, coming. We got to a co- little co- kitty visitor <laughs> coming to visit. He, he he reminds me to like <laughs> like chill. Um, Very good legal assistant. Yeah, he is. He is. <laughs> so you know, it was it came from it came from that, um, and then in you know my involvement in cannabis was you know starting in the Bay Area in like 2005, and that was when like and I had friends and people in my community who were entrepreneurs, healers, kind of on the fringes, creating uh, economic opportunity and jobs and, you know, medicine. And I mean, it was really so beautiful. And I was very compelled to work with them, you know, and at first, I just did it like, really just on a pro bono basis. I was working at California Indian Legal Services. Yes, I thought I was going to be like, a broke lawyer, like doing Indian rights law. And I I graduated making $34,000 a year. And I was like, this is what it is. I grew up broke. This is fine. I'm going to be doing this work. That's cool. But it was like the plant. She, and these plants, like, dude. Wholeheartedly (laughs) agree. She called me. You you go there. (laughs) You go there. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway. That's so gorgeous. Okay. And I would love to uh, talk a bit about your early career working in India law uh, with the California Indian Legal Services. Mm -hmm. It's a nonprofit firm, and um, it's devoted to protecting Native American rights. Okay, I pardon my ignorance. I didn't know that such a thing existed. Of course, it would be absolutely imperative that organizations take up this service for Native American folks. Um, You know, you coming from this this is your own lineage, makes sense that you would want to support in this way. But what were some of the the cases that you worked on and, and what is really happening, particularly in the cannabis space when it comes to um, Native Americans' abilities to buy, grow, sell on reservations? Mm-hmm. When I was working at California Indian Legal Services, I was doing a lot of work around the Indian Child Welfare Act. And this is a federal law that was passed to basically – protect Indian children from being adopted out of Indian communities. So here, here's the story, really. Like, like colonization has been <laughs> hundreds of years of law after law after law that it's it wasn't just direct genocide, killing people, but then they're all like the cultural, the genocide from the insistence on cultural assimilation. Mm. And in all of these different respects, in in our relationship to land, in our relationship to food, in our relationship to each other. I mean, it's just been, it's very hard. <laughs> it's very hard to it's 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 hard to navigate, you know, that the, the depth of 
the complete injustice by this government. Um, And, you know, that loops back to why being a lawyer is like, okay, wait a second, this is not right. Because I also feel that like people are not inherently bad, like systems are bad. We need to change systems, you know? And like there's this teaching, there's this, there's this phrase in my language. It's in Dinaway Magana Dog, which basically means all of my relations. And I sit with that deeply, you know, like praying to keep my like keep my heart open and mm-hmm. know that like because and I also think being a biracial person and walking in these two worlds and I've had a lot of life experiences that like, you know, it like hold my heart open and be in service of all you know? Mm. And like, okay, what is the way through? The way through is really together, you know? So anyway. um, (laughs) Can you say that one more time? The way through is really together. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. You know? I think that uh, what you just said, people are not inherently bad. It's the systems. Yeah. That is an effective perspective. It's a true perspective. It's a true perspective. Think about how we are like raised and what we are acculturated to. Okay. The, the baby, the newborn is not, it's, it's all the things that are fed into us, you know? So like the deep work, like the pandemic for me was, I called it the great humbling. Like I would walk around and imagine everything dead, just everything dead. And like, and and this and 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 in seeing everything die also i saw all the systems die and for some reason it turned deeply into myself and then like i went through this deep process of like right this decolonization of my own mind how am i participating in patriarchy and white supremacy and these other like consumerism in this way like really deeply sitting with it and it was this beautiful experience because for me i want to be perfect And I want to really like, I want to know everything at all times as a lawyer, we're supposed to know everything, but you know, perfectionism isn't healthy for the body and it's not the truth of who we are. Yeah. You know, like, and so it's like, so, so then going through that experience, that deep inward looking and like, okay, so like, like loving myself and, and, and also that in the ways that I saw myself unaware then having that also compassion for us on a larger level that helps me also be an effective lawyer and a policy reformer and an activist because on some level i want i i can feel judgment and angry and outrage you know Mm. and then it's like okay just like you know really like just sit with that and remember all of the complexities that are, uh, that we are, you know, there's like the, one of my favorite poems in this one Walt Whitman poem is like, uh, because I am vast, I contain multitudes or like I contain many contradictions. I think about that a lot, you know, big buckets. We are. Yes, exactly. And just to lightly touch on, um, you're not perfect. You said, (laughs) my dear friend, you're as close as one can get <laughs> in my eyes. Uh, well, I think that's, uh, you know, you have a, a long history of doing such beautiful work 
in the world with Native American communities. And um, after that part of your career, you then went on to start your own law firm rather early for a young lawyer, is my impression. What made you want to create your own woman-owned and steered law firm? Just if we can thumb down on the patriarchy a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly why. (laughs) I started working for this small firm in the Bay Area, and there were these male lawyer partners, and within a month or two months, you know, it's hard to, I I wonder why it's hard to say these things, but within a month or two months, I was being sexually harassed. Mm. Um, And it was like, okay, so I'm going to do this, and all the other inappropriate things that have been said and done to my body and and my being, and I'm going to participate in this way, no, fuck no, I'm not doing that anymore. And also, it was also seeing that like law firms were also unwell. No, this isn't what I want to be doing. I'm not, I, number, first of all, I'm not going to work for another dude ever again. That's how I felt at the time, you know? And that may be true. I mean, of course, I have many clients, but mm. there are these power dynamics that exist. And men, masculine toxicity does not there's just so much, so much there and does not respect and understand all of these different power dynamics, which is a whole interesting conversation when you bring it into the plant medicine space mm-hmm. with healers and therapists yes, and curanderos and their responsibility. Hmm. And that's a whole interesting conversation. But in all of these different ways, there is this illness of patriarchy. And so it was in response to that, but it was also for things, for like, I had this idea of like, no, 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 wait, it would be awesome if it was this much more egalitarian governance structure. It would be awesome if like we did a bunch of pro bono and thought leadership work and didn't have minimum billable hours and crushed people, you know, on all the levels. Like, oh, and then we would like, pay people well and give people time off and like all the things that you imagine like a healthy work environment that's reflective of again it's 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 the more beautiful world my heart our hearts know is possible i love that book title you know mm-hmm. so that and i also just realized i didn't talk about like what happened with native people and cannabis in california oh well we can get back okay we'll get back there okay you know because anytime i can talk about the absolute injustice of that i will okay beautiful well (laughs) great i feel like we covered the ground on you started your own law firm hell yeah knock down the dudes but dialing it back just a little bit to the conversation around um yes the Something that people both within the cannabis community and without are certainly not privy to is that reservations are sovereign and so in some ways and in other ways still regulated. Um, And so to create a cannabis industry within the communities comes with all its own red tape. Um, So yeah, can you explain a little bit what was going on when you started working with mm-hmm. uh, the Native American community in the cannabis industry and what's maybe happening now that people aren't aware of? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so there are um, a- around 125 tribes in California. Wow. 85% of California Indians live at or below the po- poverty line. Um, in the process of the land... Um, 
stealing and pushing people onto reservations, it was primarily land that was the least desirable. The rest was kept by the dominant culture, U.S. government, California government, right? Um, And so you have people who are, you have somehow survived through years of colonization and genocide in all of the ways. And then you're on these tiny reservations that are not in ideal places all the time. Sometimes they are, you know, only a small number of tribes have gaming. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a total misconception that all tribes or Indian people are wealthy. I think that people don't think that anymore, but there was certainly a strong sense of that for many years. Interesting. Yeah. Um, So um, with cannabis in California, uh, here is here are people growing cannabis on land that is ancestral land of all of these different tribes. Okay, now those people are not on. Some of them aren't even on their ancestral lands anymore. And then there was no protection in the law to allow tribes basically to engage with the regulated California cannabis market. So in contrast, you've got other states where they entered into compacts, basically where similar to a gaming compact, but like with cannabis where the tribe would have an agreement with the state and then they would be able to sell the tribally based cannabis into the non-tribal regulated market. And it was done through a series of discussions and what's your point of sale system and how should we use this and let's like things that happen when people figure things out government to government in in california there was not a willingness to do that on the part of the governor's office we went and met with them a number of times i worked with the california native american cannabis association led by this very amazing woman uh tina braithwaite who's a former tribal leader and she just oh my god so you know we 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 attempted to run a piece of legislation that would created a f- would have created a fix mm-hmm. to allow the tribe, so tribally based projects, to sell into the regulated market. The problem is that basically there are a number of complicated issues, but largely it comes down to this: if if a tribally based project wanted to sell the cannabis into the regulated California market, they would have to waive their sovereignty and allow, yeah, yeah, for one crop. Yeah, and yes, yes, yes. And and it's the the self-governance. Our sovereignty is already compromised in so many respects. Okay? So so to then give up more was a non-starter for many tribes. Some tribes have been like, "Well, okay, you know what? We're so broke and we're between a rock and a hard place. We're going to do it." But a lot of tribes said, "No, um we're not doing that." And now there's intertribal commerce of cannabis, which is Mm. awesome, you know? Um, But also there's a huge market in the, you know, I mean, California is the fifth largest economy in the world. 49% of the cannabis is in this state, you know, but, but what's cool is that I'm talking to folks in the California Indian community who are involved in cannabis and on tribal land about exporting cannabis internationally what is that going to look like because wow. those things are going to happen right crossover so, california yeah that's right oh yeah yeah that's right wow so what do you think was the main hiccup was this just like a chess play by the government by the california government to say if you fine if you want this we'll do this for you but you have to yeah give to- something up for us like why why would California have such like a stakehold in 
number one, I this is racism. Yeah. Just or at best lack of understanding and knowledge and and seeing consideration of indigenous people in this state that is also racism that's systemic racism that's what's happening so so that and then in the cannabis community oh my god we got huge pushback on our proposal because of fear of operators being concerned about increased competition oh and it's god. that wow yeah it's that place of scarcity understandably on some level because like look at the cannabis industry today but like the answer is not to say no especially to a group of people that have been historically so adversely impacted that is the kindest way to say that (laughs) you know and you're operating on their land you know, it's just like, it's mind-blowing. And the projects would be used to fund in part and in large part in most cases, essential government services for tribes where people are, again, 85% of California Indians are at or below the poverty level. So it's like, so that guy with his beverage company is concerned about competition with the tribes. So what, he can give the money to his shareholders and himself and have a bigger house in Venice? I mean, come on. It's really a fascinating conversation because in the cannabis communities, we talk so much about social equity and social justice reform and marginalized black and brown communities who have been systemically abused by the war on drugs and like almost never is the Native American community a part of those conversations. So Holy hell. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that mm-hmm. so that at least a couple of us can learn more about this. Uh, so so what is there to be done? Like what can be done? It's just future thinking on behalf of tribes who are looking to export globally if and when they can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here, here's the thing. If the if California and the California government can't figure it out, and, and I'll say, you know, with COVID – very few cannabis bills are, are are run right now, as I'm sure you know. So, you know, there's not a lot of opportunity to go that direction within the California Native American Cannabis Association. We tried hard. Um, I also think that there's some level of like, I like to, this is my younger punk self. <laughs> Like double middle fingers to you assholes who can't figure it out. Okay, well, we're going to go do something over here. Kind of like how I started my own law firm or other things. So like, I, I, I really like, okay, you guys, all right, whatever. I'm just going to do. So yeah, it's it's what what can we do? You know, the the, the challenge is that tribes are, are still subject to federal and in some cases state oversight when it comes to criminal jurisdiction and you know now we're talking about issues there's a public law 280 and who certain states are public to all to public law 280 states and there's you know kind of differing levels basically of authority that the federal or state governments may have in what's happening on tribal land mm-hmm. and within the tribes and so like it's when you're advising tribes it's like what how much do you, you know, you have, these are also like in advising any clients, like, okay, here's the risk. Here's kind of what's going on. What is it you want to do? How do you want to kind of move in these ways? And here's what's potentially at stake in right. whatever front, you know? That sounds like a lot of 
putting a lot of people in limbo, perhaps intentionally, so that there is only inaction. Yeah. Wow. So speaking of legislation. Okay. (laughs) Just another thing on your grandiose resume. You were one of the founders of the Los Angeles Cannabis Task Force. And something that people may not know is that just because a state passes an adult use or recreational law legalizing cannabis does not mean that the state has also implemented uh, regulation for a marketplace. So That means buying, selling, creating these projects. And in 2016, when Prop 64 passed, Californians said, hell yes, let us smoke our weed freely. Uh, There was not any language around, okay, but how do we do it? (laughs) What is allowed? Where is the the red tape here? So uh, with the task force, you helped to push forth Measure M, which is, uh, well, I mean, (laughs) we have you to thank largely for the fact that we are able to uh, buy and sell, not freely, but, you know, at least under some kind of structure. So can you tell me about that moment in time after Prop 64 passed and when you saw this need for um, steering the industry into any direction? How did that all come together for you? Los Angeles is the biggest cannabis market probably in the world and has always been the most insane. Like literally, <laughs> like like we have the most- Like consum- there's crazy people. <laughs> like completely, but like awesome and rock and roll, you know what I mean? So I, I dig it, you know? Um, and it's um, also the way that the local government, the city of Los Angeles tried to regulate cannabis- that did not do a good job, okay? Like back in 2007 when San Francisco and Berkeley were like, let's create some local rules so we can rationally work with these businesses that at the time were called nonprofit collectives. Mm -hmm. The city of LA basically said, all right, anybody who runs a dispensary, come down and register and tell us where you're at. Okay, there were like 500 dispensaries that were operating at the time. Only like 186 people felt comfortable enough to do that. Well, Hmm, let's question why would they feel more comfortable? I bet you the black and brown people that were operating felt way less comfortable. And the city of LA was, by the way, LAPD rating people all the time. Yeah. You could operate as a legal nonprofit collective. I mean, oh my, I mean, I worked with clients that were a hundred percent following these weirdo laws before we, you know, got the licenses and all of that. And still got raided. The feds were raiding. It was a whole thing. So anyway, so that's just the dispensaries. Then no, nobody was a grow. The city didn't say if you're a grower or a manufacturer or you have a delivery service or anything like, like distributing, testing, you didn't come down and register. So it was this registration for this very narrow group and a very narrow group who feels comfortable enough to go to, down to LA and register. So what happened is when the state passed the law the, the um, in, in 2016, at first, what was it called? MMRSA. MRSA. Anyway, it's changed many times, <laughs> but now Maucursa. The city of LA, well, there was a group of people in the city of LA who were part of this very narrow band of dispensary operators that wanted to lock down the market so that they would be the only ones licensed. Of course. And for me, you know, I had a lot of clients who were growers, delivery services, manufacturers. I mean, for whatever reason, a lot of young people, a lot of black and brown people who had these amazing ideas of like creating like these cool products and this whole thing. And like, I mean, it was awesome. And then as 
then we see this draft ordinance and this group, they were the they had the ear of the city council to some ex- respect. You know, mm-hmm. it's still cannabis, so you're still fringy in LA. But like, <laughs> they and and they were basically like, you know, it, it. I guess it was realizing that these people that I I I was working with or that I had talked to that they were going to be totally locked out of the market. And I remember having conversations with people saying like, and them saying like, okay, but like, if this thing passes, does that mean I can't have a business? And so starting the task force was part was was that it was like it was I woke up at four o'clock in the morning deeply devastated understanding because I have I can like see how what's happening mm. like from this like hawk's eye perspective and like oh my god holy shit like this is gonna happen like is anyone doing anything about this like LA like people don't necessarily get so politically engaged at all times plus god forbid we actually work together Cause we're like all in like a state of like, let's just like fight it out and I'm going to win and I'm going to have the biggest house. And then it's just like some, it really is. Well, real estate's very expensive here. So, you know, <laughs> true, <laughs> true. Not that that, uh, you know, warrants the, the consistent fighting, but I'm sorry, please continue. No, no, no. It's, it's, it was just insane basically. And so I started the task force to really try to create you know, the state was creating licenses in these different verticals. And it seemed to me that there was a very immense lack of diversity within the cannabis license, what was going to be the licensed industry in LA. And so it was it it that it was from that perspective. We need we need diversity. We need opportunity. We need, you know, we need a much like this isn't this whole process isn't even fair. What are you even talking about? Like it came from a sense of not shockingly, a sense of anger. <laughs> <laughs> and witnessing deep need and yeah, you course. also feeling the responsibility. For sure. And having the skills and the knowledge sure. to actually yeah. create a measure. Like little Brooke has no idea how you start to write a bill. <laughs> like I'm just thinking of you at your desk right now. Like how do you even start writing legislation? A lot of coffee? <laughs> um... Yeah, like really sitting with it. And then you 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 see then there's like the process, oh my god, of like lobbying kind of or like not really lobbying but like getting well then you have to get a lobbyist. That was like news to me, you know? And you have to like get people to like okay, like get people on board. It's a whole thing. Government it's, networking. It's crazy. But you did it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, we did. <laughs> We did with, with, I mean, and we did, of course, you know, like, oh my God, dude, the, the main, the political, the campaign manager for Prop 215 back in the day in 1996 was Jim Gonzalez. He volunteered as our chief, like kind of upper political strategist. Then we have other people that got involved. So many people just like volunteered their time. So many people did so much work, you know, I mean, the lack of sleep and the lack of billable hours that I did during that five-year period of time, huge. I think when you really look <laughs> at legislation, particularly when it comes to cannabis, because I think consumers are, you know, the vast majority of the population perhaps is not so informed, but more than any other consumer industry, people are paying attention and um, just honoring the folks that have dedicated their nights and their days and their time and their 
money and just committed to ultimately this plant. Yeah. 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 And I honor all of us as well, you know, Mm -hmm. and what's been like challenging is like the state of affairs of the cannabis industry right now. Yeah. In California, nationwide, you know. um, And so what are you seeing at a high level? What is maybe one of the biggest issues that the industry is facing? I mean, you know, practically, like right now, it's overtaxation, overregulation, inefficiencies in the regulatory bodies. Um, you know, the, the analogy that's been used a bajillion times of building the plane while, fi- while flying it. Well, that costs people who are in business a lot of money yeah. and it uh, creates a lot of inefficiencies, of course. Um, and then, you know, that there's prohibition in most of the state, the lack of retail, you know, it's the, the, these conversations in California and it's also consolidation. It is the death by a thousand cuts that I remember Hezekiah said at, at, at some Hezekiah Allen, who was the, um, and God, I haven't even, I miss him. Um, who was the executive director and founder of California growers association. And like, you know, when he mentioned, you know, the, um, the canopy cap getting stricken, you know, and that it's like, what's happening here is death by a thousand cuts. And it has Mm. persisted since then, you know, and it's all these amazingly insidious ways that essentially big, big, big money takes over (laughs) because capitalism in the current form that we are experiencing it in this country is out of control. Yes. It is completely out of control. When I was growing up, I remember my mom saying like, Ariel, I'm worried that this country is becoming like Brazil, where it's a huge amount of poor people, very little middle class, and a very few very rich people. And when you hear things like 8% of the world, eight eight of the world billionaires, because I don't know how many there are, but the eight top billionaires own 50% of the wealth on the planet. If you were like coming here, or going to another place and you were seeing aliens and like, I don't know, an example was given and that was like all the water in the world and these eight aliens. Ooh, what a reframe. What the fuck? Honestly. Yeah, if you could just swap out that resource and understand how detrimental that is for the power to be in that small of a community of humans that also, by the way, I don't know them all by name, right? So... Yeah. Not necessarily these anonymous overlords, yeah. but uh yeah. overlords nonetheless. Yeah. And so with all of this this entrenched perspective that you have and with your mission-driven mindset, like how do you stay motivated amidst all of the consistent fuckery and the and the heartbreak? And and I don't want to like steer your answer into a sad place, but um, yeah, well, how do you keep it going, my dude? <laughs> oh my goodness. Prayer, meditation, you know, connecting, being, being in study, uh, you know, I, I, I walk the red road. I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm on a path, you know, so it's the inner work, um, and the beautiful community that I I am involved with, with all and and meaning all all people, with all of our, our 
imperfections and challenges like, you know, um, and also just like this really compelled energy of knowing that feeling that in my life I am meant to deeply participate actively in this way, in these ways. And then, you know, I want to sing more and dance more and, you know, laugh more and, and be, be lighter is the truth of it. So I don't, I don't, I don't exactly know. I'm in Mm -hmm. that. I'm, I'm in a, I'm, I'm calling that in. I'm, I'm holding a deep prayer in my heart for more joy and more ease, you know, more space to like feel if this earth walk is one that can feel good more of the time than feel so painful, just to be very honest with you, you know? I appreciate the honesty and yeah, Mm -hmm. you bear witness to a great deal than greater deal than most people. Um, But just taking a minute to join you in that prayer. (laughs) More joy, more love, more music, more dance. Mm -hmm. For you, for me, for everyone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So moving on from cannabis in some ways, you are also one of the co-founders of the Psychedelic Bar Association, which is fantabulous and absolutely necessary because all of what you've described in the cannabis space, all of these issues, and then some um, are largely going to serve as a blueprint or lessons to be learned for the emerging plant emerging plant medicine spaces so what was the impetus for the creation of the psychedelic bar association let's start there and then (laughs) unravel there will be many lawyers in this space when i started out in cannabis i was one of the few people doing the business regulatory side of things yeah nicole and i were the first law firm in california to come out publicly squarely and say we are cannabis business attorneys and now every huge law firm has a cannabis practice most many law firms do it will like many things it will go through an experience where there is this idea and inception point and 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 inspiration like with cannabis something coming from the fringe and then becoming mainstreamed and what that looks like in terms of commercialization and and what 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 does that mean when when it goes through that system and systems of law and economics mm. you know and so that will happen with psychedelics with plant medicine and cannabis psychedelics somewhat similar very different but they're so they're going and I was involved in 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 uh attorney organizations in the cannabis space, but seeing how in psychedelics, and I'll just use that term for now, um, knowing from watching and being so intimately a part of what happened with cannabis and other things, other activism work in my life, knowing, okay, we're at the beginning of, of, of something again, but something similar and different and lawyers will participate in the space. And what do we want that to look like? What do we really like? What I learn from psychedelics is, and what many people describe as part of the experience at some point is this 
deep knowing recognition of our interconnectedness. Mm. Not everyone has this experience, but often like this is, you know, you read accounts of people taking various types of plant medicines. There's often people have this experience of interconnectedness and this amazement at nature, at ourselves, at this human life, like this place, basically, I I would describe it as like humility and reverence. I love that you use that word, Mm -hmm. you know? And so like, if that is what we're experiencing and we want healing and consciousness shifting, and these are these technologies and medicines that have been held in some of them and really all of it in indigenous lineages and have been used over the course of the world, what are we going to do as lawyers in this space? Are we going to do the same thing that we've done? Be be um, kind of these arguably purportedly passive tools in advising clients. Wait, wait, no, we're advising clients. We're giving people advice. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of really power, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm to gonna steer. name, yeah. absolutely. But you know, it's an interesting thing because most lawyers will say, or many will say, not all, thank God, but many, there's still this kind of dominant narrative of, well, I'm a lawyer, I'm just doing what the law say, and I'm just doing what the clients say. And as long as I don't do these outlier things, although people still do, certainly in terms of ethical violations, you know, then like, I'm just doing my job here. No, no. You are in a place of privilege. I have a, an immense amount of privilege being in the place. So it's like, wait, we need to look at this, you know? And and really a lot of the, like the Psychedelic Bar Association was inspired by wanting to bring attorneys together to have these conversations. Yes. And really to bring everyone together because we're grappling with very challenging, interesting issues around religious use, around legalization and regulation, um, around corporate forms and prescribed business models, and what is the role of the company that is involved in psychedelics in greater society? Do we want it to be a company that just operates for profit over people where shareholder privacy is the way we go? Or do we want it to look like something else? And what are these other types of corporate models, stakeholderism, um, public benefit corporations, these other like, but, and what, and do we know we're, we're figuring it out? And it's, I mean, it's really beautiful actually, because it's also been so grounded in process because mm. it's grounded from my heart in, in Dinaway, Magana dog, all my relations, you know, seriously. And so like, it's awesome. Honestly, I love it. It takes so much of my time worth it. Like <laughs> I'm like I am like healing my lineage as a lawyer right now. And that's mm. big. It's really interesting to think about lawyers or or legal systems as actually being privy to emerging markets and emerging trends more so than like the greater public. I haven't really thought about because I'm sure that you've been aware of a, a psychedelic industry being on the brink for far longer than most people. Um, and yes, you do have the power to steer it. And I couldn't think of a better Capitan. Thank you so much. But what you're seeing, what what new potential prospective clients from the space are coming to you for is to sell, to create products and to sell things. So uh, do you imagine... In the future, we're going to be able to buy 
psilocybin tinctures, capsules, raw mushrooms at stores designed for these products. Do you think that is the direction the industry is heading? And if so, is that a good or bad thing? And how do we help put proper bumpers on to steer things in a better direction? Because of course there's like the pharmaceutical direction that these plant medicines can take, which I think is probably obvious. But do you do you believe in public access and, and to what degree should that be presented? So psychedelics, there are different entry points that we we have to interact with psychedelics. Soon, and some of them, I mean, if you, some people say ketamine isn't a psychedelic, whatever, but you know. We'll that, put it in the category. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. And so it's like that, that FDA route. Mm-hmm. That is the pharmaceutical route that that is and will be one route. Um, I would say that there. It, let's pause there about the deep problems with the pharmaceutical industry, like things like the United States and New Zealand are the only countries on planet Earth where you can actually have commercials on television to sell people medications okay makes sense why i saw a pfizer commercial last night yeah yeah i don't actually want to see a commercial that says ask your doctor if mdma is right for you i don't want to see that (laughs) i really don't because you know not only like like think about it what are the drivers okay they the pharmaceutical companies oh and in the united states pharmaceutical companies spend more on marketing their projects like and products than on research. Okay. So the things, things are out of balance. This is when like you step back and you're like, okay, the ethics, the ethos, the underpinnings of why this is happening, this is deeply out of balance. Okay. Mm. So like, th- that's why it's uh, like, I, I am sitting so much more with looking into what, what the fuck is going on? You know what I'm saying? Like, honestly, like with every, and in myself, of course, too, you know, like what is happening around here? Let's look at this because because we need to. So, you know, with the pharmaceutical industry, that is one route. Issues, many issues there. Could go on about that. One other route is through religious freedom and religious use laws. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the Native American church use of peyote as a sacrament within that religious context, that is legal. Or you have certain ayahuasca churches that are 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 legal because of using the sacrament because it's a sacrament because, you know, you have the Controlled Substances Act, which has broad application, and then these laws that exempt people for this this use, right? Mm-hmm. And then we also have these local jurisdictions that are deep. It's described as decriminalization. That's not accurate. Like local jurisdictions cannot decriminalize. It's just deprioritization. Deprioritize. Yeah, that distinction is very important. Yeah, it is. It is. And then you have states that are coming out with um, regulatory programs. So Oregon is in the process of creating uh, basically adult use psilocybin model. In that model, you can't buy psilocybin at the store and take it home. Um, That will be in a facilitated context and the rules are kind of being worked out. Um, Unfortunately, that model does not have an... uh, protections for religious or ceremonial use. Oh, how interesting. Something that we're working on. 
What a big miss. How huge miss, huge miss. But you know, I think there is a Dr. Bronner's blog. David Bronner put out a really great blog about that a couple of days ago. Um, and there's a wonderful framework that's being proposed by my colleague, John Dennis. And, you know, through the religious use committee, we're talking about all of these issues of the psychedelic bar association and and also these things are complicated and nuanced and we all you know there are all these different considerations in the lawmaking process it's hard it is hard so like also things are missed and that happens that's what we do in a political discourse Mm -hmm. is then we contribute okay but you guys this is a thing to think about and then they're like but we have these concerns and then you work together to figure it out we only go through this together you know what i mean remember that we talked about that earlier (laughs) (laughs) so your work in these spaces i'm curious do you believe that like a lot of people in cannabis like big head honchos ceos execs from other industries they don't even smoke weed And not that it should be a prerequisite, but having a relationship with these plants and substances, I think, is integral to, like, having a, I don't know, a marketplace framework that, like, is beneficial for all. So do you feel similarly with the psychedelic spaces? It is also more of that, what you just described from my perspective is extractivism. It is colonization, right? Do you see that? Because Uh. it's like, I'm going to go and take this thing. I'm not going to have a relationship with it. I'm going to take it and turn it into a cog and sell as much of it as I can so that I can keep as much of my own stuff as I can. That's Mm. how a lot that that is what I mean by like capital. That is one example of capitalism being out of control. And so like bringing it back to like, should we have mushrooms that are sold in stores? You know, maybe. I mean, it's a complicated question. You know, mushrooms are very psilocybin, you know, are deeply they are little teachers you know and 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 maybe it would be most beneficial for people who are interacting with them to do it in a ceremonial context certainly my healing the deepest healing i experienced was in a ceremonial container i worked with therapists from maps years ago when i was really going through it that was helpful but the deepest healing i have had is in the religious ceremonial context you know mm. but other people may need other things okay so and maybe it's to buy it at the store and take it home and have their own experience possibly okay we're going to grapple with all of these questions what i care about is how is what is that going to look like are we going to be selling these widgets in in that for from that extractivist perspective marketing using commercials on tv and brand influencers i mean i really wonder about that you know i really do and and are we and then are the businesses that are selling those mushrooms going to just operate as corporate forms as usual like what about these other corporate forms that where where you can still make a profit Because you can in a public benefit corporation, you make a profit, of course you do, but you also hold a public benefit alongside that. And those decisions are made in that context. And like, what does that look like? And how do we create some teeth around that? Ah, what an education. I want you to like give a lecture. I need to, I'm going to like go rent out a university hall right now. uh, Honestly, I just feel like I can talk about this because I love you so much and I feel so open and I feel so appreciative. So like, I, I mean, I can't, I don't know that I've ever sat, I've never 
I've done a, a lot of talking with people over the years, like in this way, I've never been so like vulnerable and so comfortable and so outpouring. So I just really, really, just really appreciate it. You know, it's our personal relationship and professionally, I, I really, you know, I appreciate you and also how you move in the world, you know, really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for all of that. And I will receive it. And then I'm going to respond to something you said earlier. Just about like navigating. Yes, maybe for someone, a pharmaceutical setting with psychedelics is right. Maybe for some, it's um, going into a therapeutic area or maybe it's ceremony for others. And I really appreciate you recognizing that because there is no right answer. And um, one of the double blind girls had said that there's no hierarchy to set or setting. Mm -hmm. And so how these plants need to reach people um, Mm -hmm. is extremely varied, just Mm -hmm. as we all are. But do you believe, rather I'm pushing this belief on you, I have like, I guess it's a fear in some ways, or maybe just like there's a mystical component to these plant medicines. And if an industry is built around them and... Um, does not pay proper respect, will their properties diminish in some ways? Or if we are extracting components of psilocybin and putting it into pharmaceutical pills that you take every day as an antidepressant, like, I don't know, will these plants, believing they have a consciousness, respond to the abuse? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I know that there's no answer to that either, but it's a place where my mind goes and not that I want that to happen. I want people to benefit from plant medicines far and wide, but uh, I, I wonder how they will participate in the steering of the future of their existence in, in a broader way. We need to have a reverential, humble relationship to all things, including these medicines and remember that they are not for everyone yes and remember that they are not the silver bullet to to sort of resolve society's ills that we have to keep doing the hard work look i want it all to shift i want my body to feel better i want you know right now that would be awesome you know but but it is for whatever reason there it is it is it is incrementalism. It is it is the slog. It is the seven <laughs> generations that we plant these seeds for, truly. You know, and um, the human interaction with these plants, because they are, from my perspective, for me, they are sacred. These compounds are sacred. These are beautiful teachers that have showed so much. But then we humans, we bring our trauma to it too. So, you know, there are these abuses that that thank God, are being discussed within these different communities because humans who themselves are traumatized and are doing really fucked up shit are using, are, 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 are in their unhealed place working with people who are in, you know, who are in a very suggestible place mm-hmm. and in a very open place who are traumatized people who are coming to these spaces for healing. That can happen. That's what we need to grapple with because what also happens, what my experience has been largely has been the deepest healing of that I couldn't even imagine, you know, like the first time I took ayahuasca and sat with this medicine deeply, I experienced colonization that was not easy but like some place it was actually 
immensely intense, but some pain in me, this heartache that I literally was born with released, you know, mm-hmm. I still have heartache, but like this place released that, I mean, that, that was a gift with this medicine. That was a gift given by the beautiful people that held that ceremony and that container, you know, so it can be that. So it's like, again, it's like, allowing like for us to be able to hold these nuanced conversations of holding all of us in the container all of the truth of the it's beautiful and and can be scary and everything all together you know like that all has to be part of it you know absolutely there's many truths when it comes to anything yeah <laughs> everything everywhere all at once go see the movie i am <laughs> doing that <laughs> So to continue this conversation, you're also the general counsel to the Tracruna Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines. I was on the Tracruna Institute website and some of the tenants that they stand for, that you stand for, are education around psychedelic usage, indigenous reciprocity, uh, funding for social justice programs, um, what is the Tracruna Institute all about beyond me just naming a couple of these pillars and what is your work with them? Mm-hmm. I'm so I'm the lawyer general counsel for the organization. I also am uh, on the board and I sit on the council for the protection of sacred plants. Um, it's a nonprofit. I, I helped form the organization. Um, it's led by an incredible woman, Bia Labache, who um, has been working with um, studying plants as an anthropologist. And, um, I, you know, she's got this insane resume. She's like written all these books and articles and, um, she's been studying, uh, medicine, sacred medicine, psychedelics, um, drug policy reform and, you know, shamanism, all of these really amazing areas and creates and helps to co-create and works with other people in creating content and initiatives. And there are also all sorts of amazing people who are part of this organization, um, create largely creating content and dialogue around all of the issues that I just named and more really, it's like grappling with, we've got psychedelics and plant medicines. We have science, we have indigenous lineages, we have legalization and commercialization. We have concerns or thoughts around, you know, therapists and and what those kind of standards are. And, oh, geez, maybe we need therapists of color that are um, trained in, um, in, you know, in understanding what it's like working also with people who have racial trauma, like all of these kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. And I love the organization so tremendously because it's really an organization that puts deep care in issues related to psychedelics and BIPOC folks, um, you know, queer folks, um, indigenous people Mm -hmm. deeply and, 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 just such thoughtful discussions. I mean, I mean, the level of academia that happens in that organization is mind blowing. It's intimidating. It's I'm, I was cool. going to say, I'm intimidated even just listening to you speak. About I it mean, right it's now. amazing. Yeah. I highly, like really literally highly recommend become a member. Like the organization okay, needs amazing. the, yeah, really. We have community forums every couple of weeks. The content is insane. It's, yes. Yeah. Really, really, really. Like okay. it is like, yeah. So 
Anyway. Oh my goddess. Wow. Thank you so much. Yeah. Also, what was, you're on the board for the protection of sacred plants? Yeah. The council for the protection of sacred plants. So it's, it's mostly lawyers, um, in the organization, different from the psychedelic bar association, mm-hmm. um, more kind of looking at, well, a holistic. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think that needs to be on a shirt though. Right. Board. <laughs> Word of protection for sacred plants. Yeah. So I'm going to embrace it. Do they that. have amazing shirts? <laughs> I, I, no, no, no. No, they do. They do. And that will help fundraise for the organization. There we go. Plug, 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 plug. No, really. We'll have the links to everything in the episode description awesome. 1000%. Awesome. <laughs> okay. So, what is your own relationship with plant medicines, with these these compounds, these substances? And uh, yeah, how have, how have you benefited from these things? They are reminders and teachers. Really, it brings me back to what we first discussed, reminding me who I truly am, you know, reminding me that I am beautiful exactly as I am, showing me also ways that um, I have areas to grow. (laughs) And that similar mirror... For, for for me to then come like they they're assistants and teachers on the red road for me you know um they you know it's like cannabis deeply brought me she brought me you know i feel i i i i, I feel a deep connection to certain of these medicines and a very deep connection as well to again humans the planet, animals, plants. Okay, what is what is all of that? What does that mean, you know? And so, um, yeah, just like deep, deep love, deep appreciation, deep appreciation for the complexities that, that they bring forward for us as humans to continue to work out our shit. I mean, really, like that's what's in this emerging market we here we are just like we were with cannabis yeah you know okay what are we gonna do now what 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 do we want this to look like what do we want who are and then what does that say about our values mm-hmm. that that's what i i want us to stop and look at and ask those questions i want all of us to do that you know yeah i love that uh you can complain or contemplate or converse the question of, well, what are you going to do about it? I think is. Uh... Yeah, absolutely. And that's also the thing about psychedelics is like, we have a responsibility toward each other. It is, they are not just to be taken so that I can be a smarter tech person. That's some bullshit, honestly. So I can figure out which contracts I should sign and how I can make more money. Oh. Really? That's what you're learning? Okay. Well, that's not what I'm learning, you know? Yeah, and I want to take your classes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, there's one final question that I wanted to ask you, which is arguably my favorite thing to ask anyone on this podcast. The Budding Mind podcast is all about opening minds and perspectives. So is there a book, a movie, documentary, a quote, a psychedelic journey, a country you visited, 
literally anything that has opened your mind, changed your mind, or carved a new neural pathway that you could share with us? Yes. I was going, I, I first I thought of this book that I read by Richard Rohr called Falling Upward that I highly recommend deeply. And it is really, it's about spirituality in our two halves of life and what happens when we are given the great gift of being deeply humbled in a way where our general egoic structure and all the ways that we have figured out we have conceived of ourselves and figured out how to navigate when that all fa falls apart and we are seemingly humiliated and on our hands and knees and we are devastated. And then the cracking open that happens into our larger self, into our awareness of our, whatever those realizations are. So that book, I would say, I, 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 I was thinking that, but then I remembered that for me, my start of walking on the red road was about seven years ago where I was in it was like basically like the perceivable bottom I think yeah like where I was so so many years of that devastated feeling that I would just go to school anyway do work anyway try just doing the best that I possibly could and really doing very well but inside so broken so sad so hadn't you know hadn't looked at some things that happened to me, some things that happened to my family. And I was just doing the best I could trying to survive. And I didn't know any other way. And I had this small voice inside of me that told me to, and it's the, this voice of the creator. And it's the, like, it is my healer that I am a healer, that I am a medicine woman. And this voice told me to go into the woods and turn everything off and just be with myself and walk in the woods and be with the earth, be with our, our mother. And I, and I spent about three weeks and I went and had this like little like place that I stayed at kind of around Big Sur. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just cried and I walked around the woods and I felt so many things and, and I had this very deep experience and it was, I, there was no, you know, psychedelic plant medicines, nothing like that involved in any of it. It was just it, the medicine, you know, there's a word in my language, the word, the, the word for medicine is mushkiki, which means strength of the earth. That is what heals you. The strength of the earth heals us. And I, and, and I, and I was given such healing, you know, the strength of the earth. That's what, and, and that's what, like, it's like, that's what we need to remember. Like, the mother that we walk on, you know, like the water, the just like all of us, like, and it's her that heals us. And, and so many, and what, and the teaching around that is everything is medicine too. the food we eat, the air we drink, the laughter that we share, you know, like it's all, it's all medicine. And so going to that place of deep connection of feeling deeply perceivably alone because I didn't talk to anyone. I didn't use my phone. I didn't. And the fear of that and then feeling, and then guess what I was held by? I was held by the earth, the strength of the earth, you know, and every person and every being, you know, it was when I, when I in my deepest cellular structure, deeply know the truth of our interconnectedness and that I am always held, you know, 
Mishkiki. Yes. Gratitude. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Wow. What a share. Um, and to both open and close this interview <laughs> with tears streaming down my face. Yes. Therapy oh my in and of itself. Oh. Mishkiki medicine woman. Thank you, Ariel, so much for sharing. Thank you for sharing and for being and for weaving words together in a way that create impact and understanding and change and evolution. And uh, I love you so much. Thank you. Thank you.